Cast your mind back to the time before the pandemic. If you were fortunate enough, you might have traveled to new cities in countries other than your own. Perhaps you've even been able to do this once again in more recent times. When you did, it is more than likely your travels in and through this new city were mediated. Sure, mediated in all the myriad ways we've been discussing so far in this series, but also, increasingly, through a specific kind of media form. As you inch forward in line, hand luggage in tow, waiting to clear border controls, you may be fiddling with the Google Maps or City Mapper app in order to access travel times and route options to reach your accommodation. That accommodation might be an Airbnb rental, or perhaps you're staying in a hotel, which you've booked using a service such as Kayak. Once you're through border control and tiredly collect your checked baggage, you might decide against your plan to use public transport and instead hail a ride via Uber or Lyft. And then, settling in for the evening, exhausted, you peruse your options on Grubhub or Deliveroo so your dinner might be delivered to you. Platforms is one prominent label that many scholars and many entrepreneurs would apply to all of these different entities which have mediated your arrival to this new city. What exactly constitutes a platform, in general and in relation to urban life specifically, is somewhat up for grabs. But what is clear is that platforms seem to encompass a new type of media, whether understood as a form of communication, a type of service, a business model, an infrastructure, or even an institution. The popularity of such platforms is clear. It is not a stretch to say many people find such media useful for grappling with urban complexities. But platforms have disrupted cities too, whether that be their housing markets, labor markets, transportation services, or local businesses. And this disruption seems to have brought forth a situation in which platforms are becoming indispensable infrastructures of urban life, and maybe even emerging institutions. The Mediated City is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we rethink media through the city and the city through media. We will approach the media urban nexus both old and new, analog and digital, and most of the time, we'll avoid these kind of categories altogether. Some of you listeners will be students on my module, Media, Digitalization, and the City, in which we'll discuss and work on some of these themes in more detail. In this episode, the ninth in our series, we explore platforms as both new forms and new institutions of urban mediation. The key idea I want to get across is this. Platforms can be pinned down as new kinds of mediators, which agglomerate and leverage data collected from a wider ecosystem external to the platform. But we should avoid imagining this as a one-way relationship. Urban platforms only arise through wider constellations of social, political, and economic life in the city. 
When we first launched, we were hoping for, you know, maybe 400, 500 people. Harvard didn't have a Facebook, so that's the gap that we were trying to fill. And now we're at 100,000 people, so who knows where we're going next. Um, we're hoping to have many more universities by fall, hopefully over 100 or 200. And from there, we're going to launch a bunch of site applications, which should keep people coming back to the site and maybe could make something cool. Let's start by pinning down what platforms might be before digging into their relationships with cities or urbanism. Sarah Barnes, in a 2019 article in the journal Geography Compass, reminds us that platforms were not always the behemoths of digital capitalism and surveillance that we think about today. Their primary origins are as communication platforms. Think MySpace, and later Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Services which were, in their earliest incarnation, mainly venues for social interaction and the sharing of user-generated content. Barnes argues that the platforms we speak about today represent a pivot from mediating social interaction towards mediating a much wider range of phenomena. Infrastructures, markets, even entire cities. How and why did platforms expand beyond this narrower focus? Barnes cites Anne Hellman's highly cited 2015 article in Social Media and Society, which describes how, through the development of its Application Programming Interface, or API, Facebook transcended its more limited status as a social networking site to become a platform. The Facebook API established rules that allowed a new type of user to interact with Facebook, software developers. For these new users, Facebook was less an arena for sharing status updates or memes, but rather a technical interface on which they could build apps and services that not only work within Facebook, but spread Facebook outwards. In other words, Hellman describes how, through its API, Facebook extended itself from a narrow social networking website to an ecosystem distributed across a wide range of external websites, applications, and services. The construction of such ecosystems allowed for existing and new platforms to extend into a whole range of new markets. Finding all manner of work, renting accommodation both short and long term, sourcing temporary office space, hiring tradespeople or childcare providers, hailing a ride, planning a journey, coordinating a food delivery. For rhetorical effect, I've described all of these from the point of view of the consumer. But these myriad platform ecosystems also facilitate flexible interactions between producers, advertisers, workers, software developers, and even regulators. As Barnes points out, while these ecosystems of internet-enabled platforms look decentralized, and in important respects they are, the digital platform retains a special role. Platforms agglomerate, modulate, and leverage the data relating to interactions across these dispersed ecosystems. Barnes reminds us of the famous quote from Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, quote, your margin is my opportunity, end quote. For sure, suppliers make profits through Amazon sales, and consumers may get the lowest price possible, but Amazon not only profits on the transaction, it capitalizes on the data generated. The steady growth of such digital ecosystems has led, Barnes says, to the mobilization of the term platform within a series of theoretical bifocals, where platforms are one analytical lens paired with another. 
Plantin et al. in an influential 2016 article in New Media and Society suggests we think about platform infrastructures, since such digital ecosystems are increasingly becoming an indispensable scaffolding of our daily life. Authors such as Nick Cernicek argue that the business models of platforms deriving profit from the raw material of data heralds the rise of a platform capitalism. Shoshana Zubov's argument that the dizzying demands on us to relinquish rights over our data a kind of near-daily deal with the devil, suggests we are witnessing the rise of platform surveillance. And for Jose Van Dyke, Thomas Poel, and Martine Duval, a broader consequence of all this is the emergence of platform societies, where difficult questions constantly arise for governments and regulators about how to maintain or reinvent public values and control. So far, this tells us something about platforms in general, but what about platforms as urban media? Well. For Barnes, both in this article but more extensively in her 2020 book on the same subject, platform urbanism is a critically important bifocal for thinking holistically about the rise of digital platforms and their related ecosystems. Cities are often a ready testing ground for digital platforms to become infrastructures and try out new data-driven business models. And city governments are often the first public authorities needing to grapple with the disruptions brought about by a newly successful platform. It is not so much that platforms arrive in cities from some external place. Rather, the notion of a platform urbanism suggests we question how the conditions of urban life itself might be in a co-generative relationship with platforms. For Barnes, the significance of platforms for urban life is not just in how they leverage or agglomerate data for newly enriched and influential entrepreneurs. It is also that such processes of data leveraging are in a close relationship with the significance of such platforms in our daily lives. Platforms are powerful because their myriad, broadly defined users build up practical, organizational, and often technical dependencies with the platform. We can return here to the example of Amazon. In her 2022 book, Buy Now, Emily West argues that Amazon is not only built on a complex, monopolized, data-driven distribution infrastructure, it is also built on how its users engage so seamlessly with a carefully cultivated, personalized, intimate, and interactive set of affordances. We believe in and come to depend on the consumptive magic instigated when we press the Buy Now button. Platform urbanism illustrates a clear tension for Barnes. On the one hand, platform companies are uniquely powerful actors within ecosystems founded on apparent openness. Through terms of service and their API, platforms agglomerate data and retain considerable autonomy in changing the future conditions of the ecosystem. Barnes notes that legal scholars such as Frank Pasquale have argued that Under these conditions, platforms have been able to establish a kind of functional sovereignty, a new kind of supreme authority over the platform ecosystem, which challenges the territorial sovereignty of nation-states, and in turn city governments. In this reading, the term platform is not a mere metaphor or just a way to talk about entities sharing a loose family resemblance. It suggests that platforms have an identifiable degree of functional coherence, or specificity, with significant implications for urban life. Jathan Sadowski, in a 2021 article in the journal Urban Studies, argues that these entities are exerting new kinds of oversight over city governance, 
operating urban services directly, and increasingly seeking to literally own city space. Seen, for example, in Alphabet's failed attempt through its Sidewalk Labs division to build a data-driven neighborhood on Toronto's waterfront. And yet, on the other hand, Barnes argues, we'd be ignoring an equally fundamental side to such a platform urbanism if we only focus on platforms as sources of urban socio-political control or influence. That would underplay the significance of platforms for our daily experience in cities. Recall, for instance, the locationally-enabled smartphone, which we discussed in our last episode. If we are witnessing a platform urbanism today, it is deeply founded in our intimate, embodied, and social entanglement with these devices. These rectangular interfaces, packed with sensors which we carry with us in our pocket, the functionalities of which extend into our ears and across our wrists, through this embodied social entanglement with smartphones, we access all manner of daily information, coordinate so many ordinary tasks, and build up our own identity in and through myriad platforms. To be sure, as Barnes points out, platforms have explicitly designed their interfaces and affordances, notifications, infinite scrolling, poll to refresh, not only to attune to our entanglements with such devices, but also to cultivate and modify them further. But the point here is that these processes cannot be understood only through the lens of urban political economy. We also need to understand sensory urban experience. So while platforms are clearly a new form of urban power, they should not be seen as external to urban spaces or city living. As Barnes says, platforms are all too human. They feed on the ways in which we see, sense and thrive in urban environments. So I just got a message come through on my Uber. Yeah, we've got a quest on tonight as well. I didn't think we was going to have a quest tonight, but yeah. It's pretty much the same as all the other quests. £10 for 8 trips, £15 for 10 trips, and £20 for 12 trips. So yeah, going to make uh, a good amount tonight. Time is now 13 minutes past 5, so I'm going to go online now. There we go, online. So you can see, £0 made. Out in Waterloo, waiting for an order. It's 1.5 and we've got a quest on. Hopefully something comes in soon. There's quite a lot of riders out tonight. I think I'll make a decent amount. My target is £60. Yeah, let's see how we do. Hey, just got our first order. It's about to cycle away from here as well. Luckily, we've got one from Capital Kebab. And it's not a big order either. So yeah, let's pick this one up. So this one's 1.2 miles away for the first one. Pretty decent distance. Yeah, let's get this one dropped. You're hearing a clip from London Eats, a YouTube channel providing insights and tips for couriers working for food delivery platforms such as Uber Eats and Deliveroo. In the episode you've just heard, the courier initiates their evening of work, logging in to the Uber Eats app via the smartphone mounted onto their bicycle's handlebar. He discovers that there are quests for the evening. These are a sort of gamification in which couriers can earn a boost of money based on fulfilling different ranges of deliveries within an hour. The video goes on to document his travels through London as he collects and delivers meals from various restaurants and takeaways. The delivered meal is one example of the ways in which platforms mediate new, flexible kinds of urban marketplaces, sometimes labeled the gig economy, which involve temporary arrangements between producers, consumers, and workers. As Lizzie Richardson argues in a 2020 article in Antipode, 
Food delivery platforms in particular create a flexible arrangement where customers, restaurants, and couriers have, quote, varying degrees of choice concerning their participation, end quote, at any given juncture. One novel aspect of this arrangement is that a situation is created whereby the service involves more actors, not just the restaurant and the customer, but the independent delivery courier as well. How long it takes to get your meal, for example, becomes partly down to the restaurant, but also partly down to the courier. This arrangement is mediated and calculated by the food delivery platform's interfaces and algorithms, which brings these customers, restaurants, and couriers together. But Richardson stresses that we should not reduce what is happening in food deliveries or other forms of platformized urban services down to the powers of any specific platform software application. Instead, we should think about the platform as a broader constellation. The platform is not only the interfaces and algorithms of a specific platform app, but the situations, motivations, and material circumstances of all the different players it mediates and calculates. According to Woodcock and Graham, in their 2020 book, The Gig Economy, one distinctive thing that marketplace platforms do, in the urban setting and more generally, is, quote, connect workers and clients who lack either proximity or synchronicity. They allow workers and clients to meet and transact who otherwise had no plans to be in the same place or share the same moments of co-presence, end quote. When you hire a black cab in London, for example, you do so by hailing the cab in the street or from a taxi rank at the airport or train station. This is a direct, proximate, and synchronous connection with the driver, who oftentimes even owns the vehicle they are driving and, hence, are self-employed. When you hire an Uber, by contrast, you are making a query using an app, which presents you with a series of abstract classes of possible rides available. UberX, UberXL, Comfort, whose drivers are currently elsewhere in the city, if nearby, each with different prices and predicted pickup and drop-off times. In other words, Uber connects workers, its drivers, with clients, customers, who lack either proximity or synchronicity. In the specific case of London, this kind of flexible marketplace for hailing rides has created significant and well-publicized labor disputes, as well as regulatory issues. According to John Bull, who undertook a detailed analysis for the website London Reconnections, Uber in London has in the past meant at least three things, deliberately kept separate. First, Uber BV, a Netherlands-based company responsible for the Uber app. Second, Uber London Limited, a UK company licensed by Transport for London, or TFL, to operate minicabs. And third, an estimated 30,000 drivers who use the Uber BV app and who until recently were treated by Uber London Limited as private contractors, not employees. While Uber London Limited allows Uber to operate within TFL's regulatory structures, since 2017, its operating license has been notionally suspended based on concerns relating to its loose contractual relationship with its drivers. And while Uber BV's foreign location has allowed Uber to avoid UK value-added tax payments, since October 2020, this arrangement has also been put under scrutiny. What's important to notice, once again, is the ambiguity of the platform within these urban marketplaces. Is Uber, in London for example, a full-blown transportation company, or merely a software app? In a 2019 decision, UK employment tribunal judges were highly skeptical about Uber's apparent duplicity, 
presenting itself to customers as a single operator, but then to regulators as a loose commercial confederation. As they said in their ruling, quote, The notion that Uber in London is a mosaic of 30,000 small businesses linked by a common platform is, to our minds, faintly ridiculous. End quote. Delighted uh, for today's ruling. Not shocked, but delighted. I mean, I was expecting this. Uh, we always knew that Uber was uh, not obeying the law. And it really come down to exploiting workers. Um, so hopefully today's ruling should end up. Well, it's all about putting an end to the way the gig economy works. They heavily rely on BME, ethnic minority, the workers from deprived communities, so they could exploit them because they're not aware of the law. They're desperate. They just want to go out there and make some money. And the point is, the law is there for a reason. It's there to protect people. The interview you are hearing is former Uber driver Yassine Eslam, now the president of the UK-based App Drivers and Couriers Union. He's speaking after a UK Supreme Court ruling in February 2021, which denied Uber's appeal of the UK Employment Tribunal decision mentioned a moment ago. The Supreme Court ruled that Uber drivers should be counted as workers and be entitled to basic worker rights such as holiday pay and the national minimum wage. Later that year, another UK High Court ruling concluded that Uber could not count itself as a mere agent between drivers and clients, meaning that the company has responsibilities to both. What this evolving case shows is that there is nothing preordained about the implications of platforms for cities and that platforms are just as bound up in urban social and political life as anything else. They are not separate from it. My name is Carol Williams, and I'm an Airbnb host. I live in Lower Manhattan. My two sons. I've been living here in this very apartment for 34 years. Been here for so long that I know everybody. When you walk down the street, everyone speaks to you. Cuando llegué de Uruguay hace 20 años, esta ciudad me dio la oportunidad de cumplir mi sueño, abrir mi propio restaurante. Being a guest on Airbnb definitely makes it more accessible for our family to travel. It means that we can get out to places that we may not normally have gone to because suddenly we can get off the beaten track and have a really amazing experience. We love it when we can find. Joburg is the coolest place I think in the planet because it has different people from all over the world. You need to be willing to learn, then Joburg will teach you a whole lot of things. If I travel, I want to get into a local community. I don't want to go to touristy places. If we can grow those local experiences, and if we can market them properly, and that's exactly what Airbnb is doing. That's what I'm doing Airbnb is working on making experiences more inclusive for people with a disability. And I really want to bring these opportunities to other people with disabilities all on one platform. Niles Van Dorn, in a 2020 article in the journal New Media and Society, takes this entanglement of platforms within urban social and political life to what is perhaps its next logical stage. He argues that platforms, and specifically Airbnb, are becoming kinds of urban institutions. He takes his cue from Douglas C. Norris' classic 1991 definition. Airbnb is an institution because it embodies a set of, quote, humanly devised constraints and, Van Dorn adds, affordances that structure political, economic, and social interaction, end quote. 
To this, Van Dorn adds the observation of Benjamin Bratton from his 2016 book The Stack that platform institutionality also tends to involve a paradox. It involves standardizing and consolidating transactions, yet in interactions that are decentralized and undetermined. For Van Dorn, longer-term changes in how cities are governed have been fundamental in Airbnb and possibly other platforms becoming urban institutions. Over a long period of time, there's been a shift from urban government to urban governance. Cities today are governed by multiple stakeholders. This includes local governments and their agencies, but also quasi-autonomous non-governmental organizations, charities, and a wide range of private enterprises and service providers. This means that cities today have a dispersed kind of governance, a kind of compromise between central command and control and total deregulation. What's important here is that such governance structures have made it totally ordinary to imagine governance as including private enterprises in ways that go beyond lobbying politicians or litigating regulations. That still happens. As Van Dorn points out, tech companies are among the most concerted lobbyists and litigators of government. But other spaces have opened up as well for new kinds of involvement in urban affairs. Van Dorn focuses on Airbnb Citizen an initiative which sought to establish the platform as a, quote, thought leader in local as well as international public debates and policy circles, end quote. Airbnb Citizen was set up by the company as a supportive entity for a movement of home sharers who it frames as interested not just in their own economic self-interest, but in working together with local authorities and others to solve many of the issues faced in cities and broader societies today. Just moments ago, you heard some of the videos from its globally-orientated campaign. Airbnb Citizen not only encompassed public relations, however. It was related to a series of concrete measures and resources. One example Van Dorn points to is its Policy Tool Chest, initiated in 2016, which made available to local governments a series of best-practice, road-tested policy options for establishing local rules around home-sharing and short-term rentals. Today, this resource appears to have been folded into the Airbnb City portal. This portal provides a dashboard tool showing measures of Airbnb activity in different jurisdictions, a series of what it calls compliance tools to help cities establish regulations around short-term rentals, and direct one-to-one support from Airbnb to work towards what the platform calls more collaborative relationships. Van Dorn's focus is less on evaluating such individual policy resources, and more so on the overarching narrative. What is striking about Airbnb Citizen is its emphasis on empowerment. It positions participation in the Airbnb platform as leading to broader kinds of democratization. This is presented as happening across a whole series of areas. Airbnb is said to empower people to earn extra income from their homes. It gives ordinary people a greater ability to benefit from tourism. It provides new types of tax revenue for local government. It is a narrative in which everyone, observes Van Dorn, apparently wins. But what about when regulators don't believe the narrative? Van Dorn details how, in such cases, Airbnb has proven to be a very antagonistic actor, prepared to mobilize its user base and especially its hosts very effectively. Airbnb can do this, says Van Dorn, not just because it's a powerful company, but because its users, and specifically its hosts, variably want Airbnb to succeed, since it meets their economic interests as well. 
Again, like with the example of Uber or Deliveroo, we can observe ambiguities about just what the platform is here. As Van Dorn asks, quote, Is Airbnb a business, engaging its regulatory entrepreneurship by instrumentalizing its user base to fight for its cause? Or is it a platform facilitating a grassroots movement that fights for its own cause, which happens to be structurally aligned with Airbnb's cause? End quote. This ambiguity also manifests in Airbnb's home share clubs. While some of these were long-standing, others were cultivated with direct support from Airbnb starting in 2016. Ostensibly independent, Homeshare clubs allow Airbnb to minimize its appearance as a business corporation and emphasize itself as a mediator between people. Homeshare clubs, says Van Dorn, look like civil society entities in that they are not entirely public nor entirely private. For Van Dorn, they act less so in the way Jürgen Habermas might imagine. They are not so much autonomous associations aimed at countering the market or the state. Rather, and taking a more Foucauldian point of view, Van Dorn argues that civil society is always a fusion of social bonds and economic bonds, predicated on, quote, the way they question the very legitimacy of the regulatory state through the gospel of redistributive market power, end quote. The gospel to which they adhere, says Van Dorn, is orchestrated by Airbnb. But not just as a discourse. Orchestrated more functionally as well, through Airbnb's technical protocols. This returns us to Frank Pasquale's observation, mentioned earlier, about what makes platforms distinct, that they establish a kind of functional sovereignty. Airbnb is able to challenge the sovereignty of nation-states and their city governments not just as a profitable company, but because it can leverage its private control of specific areas of urban data in a way that effectively places it advantageously in relation to more long-standing forms of territorial authority. So, who exactly are the citizens of the Airbnb Citizen Initiative? On the surface, says Van Dorn, it is a dual figure, the guest and the host. However, it is substantially evident that the host is Airbnb's preferred citizen. Specifically, the middle-class homeowner seeking to turn what is perhaps their most significant asset into income. These preferred citizens, however, are also the main bearers of risk, says Van Dorn. It is important here to point out that many Airbnb hosts rent out their accommodation using the platform not to generate extra income, but basic income. So when Airbnb changes its terms of service, or how its algorithm displays properties, the impact will be felt most severely amongst those who are structurally most dependent on the income provided through the platform, says Van Dorn. As he says in concluding, quote, This ultimately makes Airbnb a risky platform for micro-entrepreneurial citizens, especially the more precarious among them. Does Airbnb have their back? And if so, for how long? Will it use its technological and institutional power in the service of its most vulnerable citizens, or will it further reset the terms of participation to their disadvantage? End quote. The location of power or influence in an emerging platform urbanism is complex. As we've seen, it's not just about the platform companies. But Van Dorn forcefully argues that we should nevertheless parse out the role of platform companies when they acquire a kind of institutional status. Which is to say, not only when they seek to exert soft power, for example, lobbying city governments, but also the ways in which platforms present, in ways that remain not so well understood, forms of data-driven sovereignty, 
in which they and their associated ecosystems appear to have degrees of self-governance. That's it for this episode. In our next, we will be stepping back and thinking about the longer-term implications of computational software and hardware for cities. The possibility that we are seeing the rise of a kind of urban sentience, what that might actually mean, and what we might do about it. So, until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to The Mediated City.